you got a eight-year-old kid, a nine-year-old kid, and they hop in that tractor and they can drive it to the next pile on the wide open field, you know, that's a great opportunity for them to learn how to control something that is way bigger than they are with tires that are taller than I am and give them that opportunity to show that they can learn it. Howdy, I'm Hannah Newinch-Wonder, a production lead at a soybean seed facility in central Illinois, and you're listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today we have a very interesting interview with a very rare person, a guy named Brian Mose, who is a feedlot operator in South Dakota. He's an interesting guy. It's not very often that you meet a man that is in his mid-30s that has five children. He lives way out in what I would consider the middle of nowhere, but he is active in so many different communities that I often turn to him to say, how do I get better at getting along with people? How do I get integrated and think about this in a bigger way? And you can tell that Brian's slow talking demeanor, but his deep way of thinking about things is a great conversation to have. And I'm really excited to be able to share this with you because he's a very rare guy. Before we go to the interview, I want to talk about a concept called the Dunbar's number. Dunbar's number is a concept of how many social relationships can you have so that you still feel connected with the community that you're in. And different groups have different numbers, and it really is how many people can I keep track of what's going on in their life and understand the details enough of what is all around them that I can offer them advice, that I can be connected with them, that I can really understand what's going on. And the Articulate Ventures Network got together a couple of weeks ago, and we decided that we haven't reached our Dunbar number, but we want to make sure that we never grow too quickly. So we've decided that between today and the first of the year, January 1st of 2021, we want to limit the growth to 45 new members. So if you've been thinking about joining, you may want to do it early because we are going to shut it off after 45 and we want to make sure that the most enthusiastic, the most interested feel welcome to join before we shut it down and keep building our community and uh, open it back up to grow again some other time. But if you're interested, I hope you'll check out network.articulate.ventures. There you can sign up to become a member, get away from the free social media where everybody kind of gathers and throws in ideas and maybe runs around and there is no Dunbar's number. There's so many connections that you can't possibly keep track of other people. Know that we're doing things different at the Articulate Ventures Network. So we hope that you'll join us there. Until then, we're gonna head over to the interview with my man, Brian Mose. Brian Mose, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Vance. So Brian, if this were a documentary film, you being a feedlot operator would be the villain and I would be hammering you with questions about why you're doing such evils to the world, but that's not at all the case. But there's a lot about feedlots that people don't understand. And when you think about being portrayed as a villain, what does that bring up for you? Why do you think that that's not correct? The biggest thing is, is because we have we have 2,000 head of cattle on feed right now and you know the bigger is evil is corporate but we're just a family operation me and my dad take care of the feedlot with help of a couple people and that's the biggest thing I try and get out is we're a family operation we're not evil we're working hand in hand in our community we support our community we help try and grow everything we got going on locally and nationally 
I met you at a um, at a Farm Bureau Collegiate event up in South Dakota, and you were like the youngest family man I think I had ever met. I don't think I'd ever met somebody that had as many kids as you did, but also had this kind of sensation of being a father. So when you describe it being a family operation, what does that actually mean to you? To me, being a family operation, I grew up on this operation. We started in 1987. Dad went off on his own, broke off from another farmer, and we've grown from 30 head to 300 cows we calve out. It's hands-on when I grew up and with my family. That's why I'm back on the family farm because we love this life. I got a nine, a seven, and a four-year-old that would rather be out here on the farm than going to school or sitting in the house. And that's what I enjoy seeing them out there helping feed bottle calves. They want to come out every morning and help if they can and take care of this livestock. It's that passion, that love, that care of these animals that, you know, they're another family member to us. <laughs> so you have four, four kids that can get out and work and you have a newborn infant. It seems like you have a family that's so large that you're almost from a bygone era. I mean, I'm the middle child of seven, but it's very, very rare that somebody has five kids or at least around me. What, what are you living in a, in a lost world? Is this ever coming back? Like, what do you think about that? I, I look at our community and we're one of a few of my classmates that we have bigger families, three to five to six kids. We're not alone in our rural community here locally. And even the ones that have moved away to different towns, they still have larger families too. So it's still alive and well. And I'm really proud to say that, you know, I got five kids and I'm trying to raise them in this world and help them get through to the future and help them to grow the world. What was different about fatherhood than what you expect? How, how old were you when you first started having kids? Well, nine years ago, I'm 35, 34 now, just about 35. So nine years ago, we had our first son and I didn't know if I was ready for it or not. I was fresh out of college. My wife was just finishing school and still finishing some of her teaching stuff. So we were young and kind of didn't know much and ready to take on the world. Weren't going to listen to anybody else tell us how to raise your kid. It's like, no, I know it. You should have been raising your kids like this. And I'm like, there's a reason a lot of people are saying, don't tell me how to raise my kids until you've raised a kid. Because there's a lot you learn that you don't know that you don't know. Oh, man, that is like my entire experience. You know, you think about like, oh, well, you know, it's time for bed. You just put the child to bed. But you don't realize that child has like something inside of it that says, I don't want to go to sleep. And like all these old wives tales and all these little tricks, you have to have access to them because just trying to do it on your own is like this little mystery box doesn't want anything to do with me. And that's with five kids, I don't think we've had two of them that have been the same. You know, everyone's got a different routine at bedtime. You know, one wants to be cuddled. The other one wants to lay out and sprawl out. And it's amazing. You know, they have the same parents, but they're totally different kids. Everyone's their own person and to deal with that. And I'm sure it's different every night for you with your little one that she doesn't always want the bottle every night. Sometimes she just wants to cuddle or wants to stretch. And, you know, that's, this fifth one's really throwing us for a loop. He's different than all the other ones. So it's like we're learning over all new. And when you think about uh, what you expected fatherhood would be like versus what it actually is like, what's the, what's the difference between those two things? You know, I thought it would be, you know, it's kind of easy. I grew up, my dad was hands-on on the farm. So I was always with him and me being the only boy, I have two older sisters 
it was a little different. I was kind of like the oldest child because I was the only son in some respects, but I was still the baby of the family. And to be there hand over hand with him every day, all day, you know, I thought, oh, this is going to be pretty decent, easy. And you get into it and you realize it's so complex and there's so many layers that it's hard to realize what all you have to do because you're worried about the financial, you're worried about that everybody's happiness, you're worried to make sure everybody's going to make it to the future and stay happy, healthy. And I'm really family orientated. So I want to be with our grandparents, with our parents, show the kids what our family is. We're, you know, we're a big family unit. We're kind of our own tribe. We stick together and we still every Sunday morning go to our grandma A's and we all sit and have coffee, whether she's there or not, we get together as a family and get together. And that's the one thing I wasn't quite ready for is it takes extra time. And I was the hurry up, let's go. I'm going to get in a vehicle and drive somewhere and be there. Well, no, it takes time to get everybody loaded. You've got to make sure everybody's happy. They've got all their own individual things. You got to have seating arrangements when you get to five kids. So the two that fight with each other aren't next to each other and split them up a little and rearrange. But really, I wasn't expected to take care of these kids and watch them and make sure that you're here at this time and taking care of all their needs. There's a lot a person doesn't realize. Yeah, I think one of the things that when you're a kid, you think, well, my parents just say things and I just do it. But you forget as a kid, no, you didn't just do it. Like you you were bucking the system at all times and, and uh, you got your parents all the way to the edge that you knew you could push them and then you stopped what you were doing. And so then there's this like weird tension. As an adult, I'm starting to realize watching my brother go through this or my sister is that uh, you need to have that child know where that edge is. But if you fall into the trap of making that edge be as soon as they step out of line, then you've got a real problem because that's when you become a tyrant. How do you like? How do you think about this? Are you afraid of becoming a tyrant? I I am afraid of becoming a tyrant because I don't want to be the guy that just says no or do what I say because I said so. But in the same breath, some of that needs to be okay. You've asked a couple times now I've responded with some answers you need to just say okay mom okay dad you know and understand you'll learn more later but you still have to go with the flow and do what needs to be done at that moment because we can't always sit and explain as parents you know everything that's going on and these young developing minds you have to feed that curiosity so they learn but at the same time they need to know when enough is enough and I I struggle with that point because I got boys that are so enthusiastic about this farm they want to know well, why are we doing these bales this way or why aren't you pushing this lever or that lever right now and I try and explain to them the best I can why it's going on but some of it is you don't know what you don't know and to get them built up to that point it takes time and there's a lot of knowledge that they don't know as kids and you forget that they don't know and it it makes it difficult to relate to them sometimes but you got to start small baby steps and keep working with them and have them actively involved with whatever you're doing so they learn. You know, if you have kids on a farm, uh, I think about the safety aspects. I mean, how much this society has moved towards protecting these children is, is totally different than what it was when I was growing up and probably really different for you too because you were living out on a farm. But like, it, I know people that live in a small town that it's not acceptable anymore for the kids to walk to school. Like they are expected that parents drive them and that you're abusing kids. And then you go all the way over to the other pole where you're talking about, you know, your kids maybe starting to be either be around machinery or actually starting to run it or starting to uh, handle it. 
what do you what do you think? I mean, you're living in in a bygone era in a in a modern age. Yeah, and to go back at eight years old, I was driving a loader tractor with you know eight thousand pound bales behind me on the state highway at eight years old. You know, and we didn't really didn't think much of it. You know, you just you didn't go on road gear. You you stayed at fourteen miles an hour instead of twenty. And my wife was the same way. You know, she, she was strapped onto the seat of the tractor and she drove the square baler while her dad stacked the bales on the hay rack. Now I think back to that, I'm like, I don't know what I want my kids doing that at that age. You know, it's, I'm still worried, but at the same time, we got to give them the opportunity to show that they can do it. Here recently, we've been hauling bales home from the field with straw bales and we got them stacked in the field so we could plant some cover crops. And in between stacks, it's a long walk if you got to walk, but you got to, eight-year-old kid, a nine-year-old kid, and they hop in that tractor and they can drive it to the next pile in the wide open field. You know, that's a great opportunity for them to learn how to control something that is way bigger than they are with tires that are taller than I am and give them that opportunity to show that they can learn. And by golly, they did pretty darn good for driving all by themselves. I mean, they've helped me drive around the yard, but you give them control of a big behemoth of a machine that can lift 3,000 pounds and say, here, drive this to the next pile for me and park it, put it in park, get it in neutral, make sure it's safe to get in and out. And they're doing a good job. We can challenge these kids and they can really show us their capabilities if we give them the opportunity. And I think we're losing some of that. I definitely think we are. You know, I've been playing around with this idea of, I think that the city culture, uh, whether you're in Atlanta or Washington DC or New York or San Francisco, we like to think of those as really heterogeneous uh, environments. And in some respect, because of where they're located geographically, they're a little bit different. But I really think that there is a new cosmopolitan culture that emerges. And a big portion of that is um, you have very few responsibilities, right? Like, you, like you're basically caring for yourself. And a big part of caring for yourself is giving up rights that you have so that that way you can live in this giant community. But when you give up those responsibilities, there's some aspect of the individual self that goes with it, right? Like, you know, a kid that, le- that, that is learning how to drive a tractor or learning how, how hot it can be in the middle of July if they have to work, that does something to who they are as an individual self. And I, I wonder, what must the cosmopolitan society look like to a guy that's living out in the middle of South Dakota? Does, does, is it something that you look down on? Is it like how, how do you think about the people living in these societies? I don't know that I necessarily look down on it. I had the opportunity to move down to Arizona and live in a big city for a few years down there while I was doing some engineering work. And it's a different way of life, but you can still find people who are putting values into their kids. You know, it to me, going to church and believing in God was one of our big staples when we moved down there that was our rock. And to meet people in the church and to see people who are still teaching their kids values and making them work. And it was a little different because I look at people who say they don't have time. And down there, you know, most people had their weekends off and, you know, they had time to do whatever they wanted on weekends. And I took the opportunity to do some woodworking, some of my passions where I was off on the weekends. But now that I'm back on the farm, you know, it's 24 seven, you know, it's go, we have a feed lot. So it's kind of like a dairy, got to be here to feed on time, morning and night. And that's the one thing, the schedule where they had more flexibility that they weren't pinned down to the schedule where they could go and do this or that, that there's not as much this rigid structure where you have to be there work and you have to take care of this. And some of that was lost 
on some of that, I believe. Not everybody, but some of them didn't have that extra ethic where, no, I have to be here at seven, eight in the morning, every morning, every day of the week, or these cattle don't eat, you know, cattle got to get fed before I do. And that's a big thing with the stewardship of these livestock that I think is kind of getting lost where we're getting three or four generations removed from the physical labor side where a lot of people are getting more of that blue collar work behind a desk all day. Yeah, I really think that the idea of responsibility is one of those things that keeps the darkness away. Like the, the you know, if I wake up on a Monday morning and I decide, ah, I don't really want to do some work today, th- there is nobody that's, well, now there is because I have a child. But if you're in that environment where you don't have things that are reliant on you, then, um, yeah, you're free from it. You do go do whatever you want with your time. But at the same time, you the the responsibility is what actually makes you who you are and without it i think that that is one of the things that leads people to uh depression i think particularly men because i think men are set up and structured so that the way that they keep the the depression away the way they keep the the I call it the darkness, right? The the suicidal thoughts or the what is it all for is because, well, I don't really have time to uh, mess around with those ethereal thoughts. I got to get things done. And I think that that's one of the consequences of living in a cosmopolitan society is that you don't have those responsibilities in the same way that your boys, they're, they're learning real fast. Hey, if I don't get up and feed that calf, it, it's going to die. It doesn't matter that it's cold. It doesn't matter that I'm tired. It doesn't matter that I don't feel well. I've got to do it. That's right, Vance. You know, they learn that I got to take care of this and I can watch this grow and blossom into something wonderful. That's, I wonder with you, how has that changed now that, you know, you have your baby girl there, you know, you have her counting on you more than it's just not just your wife. It's you have a whole family now and you're trying to grow and develop your daughter. I think one of the biggest things that I didn't expect out of having a, a daughter is that, um, the things that are a real pain, right? Like the things that are actually difficult to do. You've got a crying baby. You don't know how to fix it. I thought you would only have this frustration, but that frustration has meaning in it, right? Like it's like, yeah, you're crying and I don't know how to fix this and I'm tired and I want to go to bed, but here I am doing something valuable because if I don't do it, no one else will, or, you know, or, or maybe the state would in some crazy situation, but like, that ends up giving you so much more meaning. And I think, man, I really think that I somehow got way off the path for a long time because I didn't, I didn't really understand that responsibility is a huge component of meaning. And now that I have all this responsibility, I don't want to shirk it. And now I'm like, what else can I do? How else can I help? I see the value of my wife and I working together being so much more uh, deep and important than I did when we were just two people living together that were sharing resources. Now we're not just sharing resources. We're sharing this, this, uh, you know, it's a burden, but a, a great burden. Yeah. And that's one thing that I really learned when we kind of segregated my wife and me after we got married a few years later, we had our firstborn child and we moved, you know, 1700 miles away from any family we had. And we had to really rely on each other. And I thought that was an awesome building opportunity for us to rely on one another, to provide for the house, for our son, and for our life down there, and to make friends and family and connections and learn how to do it on our own. And I think that really developed my wife's relationship and mine to the point where 
we're able to get through really tough times. And we've seen some with the economic times we've had back in 08 and here recently in 2015 with the cattle market prices, we've been able to lean on each other and pivot. And, you know, she has her teaching degree, but we decided it was in our best interest with our kids that she could be home to raise them and use her teaching degree and do a daycare here locally, you know, fill a need in our community. And does your wife then homeschool your kids? We don't homeschool. We do send our kids to school, but she starts them going through your colors, your letters, showing them how to hold a crayon so they can draw inside the lines and trace and get them to learn the fundamentals. So they have that, you know, that step up when they get going into school that they're ready to go and try and do what we can. You know, uh, a couple of years ago, I went with my with my buddy um, Bernard. He goes by Chubby Emu on uh, YouTube, and we had a chance to go out and speak to this grain co-op in Kansas. And there were families from all throughout Kansas. And on our own, we were just kind of talking with these various families. And twelve of the families, totally independently, at different conversations, told us we're homeschooling our kids. And at first, I thought, like, well, isn't that funny, or isn't that kind of cute? But then you start realizing when you're now responsible for this child, you're like, hey, I want this child to have my values and I want it to have the values of my family members that are outside of, you know, our immediate family and then maybe my community. But you start seeing like there is like this weird pressure, danger. What are you going to be teaching my kids uh, when I send them off to school? Is this something you and your wife have had to grapple with, or is it because you're in South Dakota, you're pretty much fine with what they're teaching your kids? Kind of a little bit of both. I'm still worried with what the kids are getting taught, but I'm probably a little guilty of not paying as much attention as my wife, but she's been involved. She has her special ed endorsements to take care of any ADHD kids or behavioral and how to deal with that with her schooling. With that, she's able to understand a little more what's going on with these younger kids. You know, she's up till fifth grade, sixth grade teacher, and she pays more attention to what the kids are doing in school. But that's why I try and still, that's why I try and instill these values in my kids on the farm. And locally, I know who all my school board members are, and a lot of them graduated with me, and they have the same values as me. And so that really puts my mind at ease that they're looking out for what my best interests are, because they also have crop or livestock and they have the operations that they're taking care of the same thing and want the same goals I do to build our community and build this next generation. That idea you keep bringing it up as community and you and I have been talking about this for quite some time. I also, before having a child really thought that, um, I, you know, that I was cosmopolitan, that, that the, the better community was the people far away, the people living in the big city. You know, I was living in Washington DC and in New York and, uh, I really did not pay any attention to my homeowners association, my school board, my the things that were closest to me because it just didn't seem all that cool or all that important. And now I'm realizing like, oh my God, this is by far the most important thing. The fact that I can't name the school board members, but I know what's going on with the speaker of the house and the president seems like a, a really foolish mistake on my part. Yeah. When we moved back, I had the opportunity. I was approached by, from 4-H, I had bought a heifer calf to show from our local Farm Bureau member. And she kind of heads up all East River, South Dakota. 
And she kind of said, hey, we got this position opening for District 3 Young Farmers and Rancher Committee member. I'd really like you to fill it. Come down and see what we're all about. We had a winter conference, and that's one of the best things that's ever happened to me because it's really pushed me to know I need to take this time away from the farm and build on this community and start working towards my better community. And also, besides just helping local events, FFA, 4-H, and our fire department with their events, getting them up and going. I also need to be a little bit more regionally on the state working on it and touching some of that national, but it all starts small in your local community. And you got to be making sure we've been talking about it quite a bit. You got to make your own bed first before you can go make other people's bed. So you got to start small and local. Yeah. And I, I, uh, I, it's one of those things that I keep thinking to myself, well, I don't have time. I've got to do this thing or that thing. But when I look back on my life, there's almost nothing, uh, it's, it's just like this order and chaos concept, right? Where you, in everything that you already know and you have control over, nothing new comes from that. Certainly you extract value from, from being a part of your feedlot or my business, but nothing new is ever going to sprout out of that. So you have to go to places where you're encountering different people. And I like, one of the, one of my best friends in the whole world, the guy that has probably altered my life more than anybody else is a guy named Rob Long. And it's because I went to an event where they were having a bunch of people that were trying to start their own businesses. It was called the Startup Weekend. If I had not gone to that event, I would never have met him. And literally everything that's going on in my life right now, it would be so totally different that it's not even, you, it's not, it's not possible to calculate. And so I always have to have that in the back of my mind of like, no, you're not wasting time. You just don't know what value is there. Well, that's go back to when I first met you, Vance. And I listened to a few podcasts here and there, but our collegiate Farm Bureau wanted to start something new. And I'm so grateful that you decided to agree to come and join them on their big endeavor. Because wow, all that I've learned from that, it was worth the 45 extra minutes drive time to come see you meet you and expand my horizons and realize I can go slay my dragons and get out there get on the edge and stand up for what I believe and help bring people together for a common goal so you've been a part of uh, different book club parts and in reading these things what what of the book club have you enjoyed what's been one of the ones that stuck out to you that you wouldn't have read if it hadn't been for the book club yeah the biggest one that I think is the stranger because I had a hard time relating to it. I actually listened to it three times. I'm not very good at reading with my time commitment, but I sit behind the steering wheel of a tractor quite often that all I have to do is put my headphones in and start listening. And I really shied away from the radio and listening to that book. It, I hate to say it, but I kind of related with him some. Initially, I used to kind of be kind of emotionless and kind of pulled away. And now I that I have a family and I've really grown into that position as a father and trying to raise them. I realize, you know, I got to be more active and involved and not so passive. And I don't think I ever would have picked up that book and got past page one of the stranger if it would not have been for the book club. That's been an interesting one, right? Because there were very few people that were like, yay, we're reading this book on, uh, you know, nihilism at its, its most extreme. So for anybody that hasn't read the book, the stranger, it is essentially a guy that has no feelings. In the very beginning of the book, his his mother dies and he shows very little feeling and he goes through a series of experiences that you would imagine any one of them would elicit a really shocking emotional response from a person all the way up till, and this is not a spoiler, it's in the middle of the book, he kills a guy 
and uh, it it has no impact on him. He just doesn't. He doesn't even care. And uh, it's funny how many people have said I related to him, and 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 it's like I think that that's the darkness thing that we were talking about before. Like he didn't really have any responsibilities, or if he did have any responsibilities, he didn't take them on willingly. And I I think that that's one of those things that I keep coming back to as deeply important for our society to face is like if you don't take responsibility for cleaning your room or for feeding a calf or for doing something the darkness is coming for you because it's the responsibility that is that light and it's that book that gave us this whole set of of language and words and ideas to be able to describe and then when we were talking about zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance which is literally the exact opposite where the guy was getting meaning out of things as small as turning a screw uh to be able to fix his motorcycle and and you have this whole language that you can uh pattern back and forth with with people that were from all over the country yeah and that's another book that caught me a surprise is you know i really with me being a farmer and being more hands-on, you know, I kind of related with the side that, you know, yeah, we got to fix this and you got to know how to fix it. Why would you not want to know how to fix your own equipment? I mean, you're stuck on the side of the road. You're not going to get anywhere until the next day when somebody can come that knows how to fix it. You got to know what to do. And maybe granted with my engineering side, I know you aren't going to be well-versed and with all this technology behind engine emissions, how we're changing to the high digital side, you're not going to know all that and be able to do it, but you got to know how to diagnose it and get going. And that's really strange that a lot of people anymore, the common knowledge of how to fix your own stuff, we've pushed that so far to somebody else that we're so localized in our own knowledge of whether it's like you. You are a great communicator and you ask these amazing questions of everybody. I don't think I could do that. But I know how to go in and troubleshoot, you know, an electrical issue, as they talked about Zen and the Art of Motorcycle. It can drive you mad till you find it. Then you find it, it's like, well, duh, it was right there in front of me the whole time. Why didn't I catch it? And the best part about that book was the, so he talks about, at least to me, he talks about these gumption traps, right? Where it's these, he's describing uh, where, where you quit when you're trying to do maintenance or where you really screw up and you, and you get frustrated or you get hot or you get uh, annoyed or whatever that is. And the thing that was so amazing was I don't think anybody that has ever tried to fix anything in their life has not eventually hit one of those gumption traps, but I had never heard anybody else describe them. So for a lot of those sensations that he was talking about, I always thought, well, it's just me that feels this when I can't figure it out. It's just me that feels this when I'm too hot and I'm tired and I just want to give up. But by by reading something that he had also observed, then you're like, okay, well, it's not just me. I have a shared understanding with this author. And then you're in this book club and you're like, everyone felt this gumption trap section of this of this book w- was like describing something deep to, to who you were. Well, yeah, it's kind of that breath of, okay, I can relax. It's not just me. It's everybody else is having these issues and being able to talk with people from all over and realize it's not just localized to farming. It's not localized to sitting in an office. Everybody has those issues and that fact where you can just step back, look at it and come back to it later makes a big difference when you come back and it's, it's right there. It's like, well, I just needed that break, that breather, go do something else, quit for the night and start over fresh the next day. 
So you, you've mentioned a couple of times that you're an engineer. I don't know. What, what kind of engineer are you? I went to South Dakota State University and got my ag engineering degree, and I concentrated on power and machinery emphasis. And I also, with Noah and I kind of wanted to come back to the farm and have the engineering as my backup. I also got a egg business minor and I did some math minor work towards a math minor as well, where I had so many math classes already. I was maybe a little overachiever and got done in four years with too many things. When you say ag engineer, were you out there learning how to weld or how, what was, what's ag engineering? Egg engineering is kind of an offshoot from like more mechanical engineering, but we deal more with kind of the egg equipment side. I mean, I had the thermodynamics. I also had uh, power and machinery where we talked about hydraulics and also gears and ratios. And the one thing with the egg engineering is we got a little more of the environmental side and kind of cross discipline between the engineering side over here and the egg major site over here where the soils and the natural resources and tried to put them together. And that's what I really wanted to do because I was able to take soils class to understand our different soil classifications and to monitor those and also our natural resources to watch our waterfall or rainfall and how everything hits the ground and does it get absorbed. You know, we've worked on our farm since I've learned some of this stuff, our water infiltration, we've got our organic matter in our soils from two and a half percent up to five, six percent organic matter, and each percent gives us an extra inch of rainwater holding capacity. And my engineering side with my statistics, I just I love this data side where we can show our improvements and we really push to try and get more technology. That's a great thing that I feel I'm able to bring back to the farm is the analytics and the digital side. You know, it's funny, uh, as I was getting ready for this conversation, I was looking up, you know, Moe's Family Farms, and I saw that you got an Environmental Stewardship Award. And to be totally honest, in the back of my mind, I was like, well, they're going to give those awards to somebody. So there's always going to be somebody that wins. But I see the look on your face as you're talking about the changing the organic matter in your farm. And it's not what I was expecting. Like, it's something that you actually take deep pride in. Tell me about, like, if there was no award, would you be going after this? Would you be doing these things? Yeah, we'd still be doing the same thing. I mean, my dad has planted over 25 acres of trees on our place that wouldn't have been here originally to give us shelter belts, give us windbreaks, and take care of our environment and intertwine with the wildlife we have around. We also have, you know, we're in a prairie pothole region, the Glacial Lakes area, so we have a lot of sloughs and low waterways that we want to make sure that they stay clean and we're not giving any manure or fertilizer runoff. So that's been really important to us. And our neighbor, Lynn Johnson, really helped with getting us going on that too and working with the natural resources side and working with everybody in the community to make a good hunting place, a good place to live and grow. And we've really taken a lot of animal health into it as well because we built these monoslopes so they can be partially under the roof or outside. They got room to run or they got room to get out of the weather. So you're talking about in a, a monoslope, for somebody that doesn't know, is is a roof that just is, uh, it kind of looks like a lean-to, but but I, I don't know how to describe it better than that. Yeah, we, we have two buildings. Our newest one that we really like is 80 foot wide by 310 foot long. And we're able to let the cattle get all underneath that in the summertime to get out of the sun and shade in South Dakota, we get relatively warm here, 
but also we're able to let them go outside and stretch their legs at night when it gets cool. It's fun to watch them cattle. They That sun goes down and they're outside running around where it's cool and having fun and kicking up their heels. And we really take pride in keeping our farm clean and keeping the cattle clean and happy. You know, it's interesting. I was at a wedding this weekend and uh, one of the one of the people at the wedding had heard the podcast and they had said, oh, yeah, so, you know, some cattle farmers and we were kind of chatting back and forth. And then he brought up uh, feedlot cattle and uh, it, he he was nice enough about it, but you could tell he has a little bit of a, a bitter taste in his mouth about feedlots. And we kind of mentioned this at the beginning when I was saying people think of you as as uh, or feedlot operators as evil where do you think that comes from? Why, why is that 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 is the normal state that people are in? I think a lot of that comes from just the not knowing, being so far removed that everybody thinks of old McDonald's farm, you know, you got a cow, you got a pig, you got sheep, you know, you got a little bit of everything. But where we're bigger and have more availability, we specialize in these cattle because we were having a hard time getting land around us. So we decided we have a passion for cattle. We know what we're doing with cattle, you know, and my father led the role on this that, well, let's expand on our feedlot. You know, we had good luck with what we were doing with very few facilities. And now we've built it up to quite an operation where we're able to run 2000 head through our operation and take care of them and keep them healthy and, you know, give them vaccinations so they don't get sick and get out front of them. And that's the biggest thing with all the vaccinations and the bigger numbers, a lot of people are scared that, well, you just got all these numbers. You're not looking at them. You're not paying attention to them. And that's the biggest thing on our operation is I feed every day. And if I don't, it's my dad feeding, you know, 99% of the time. And when we're feeding, we're looking who's coming up to the bunk. Who's not as perky as they should be. You know, who's a little slow coming up to eat. And we take pride in taking care and watching all these livestock come up every morning and every night when we feed and, we clean their water tanks. It's just like you have a glass of water, you know, that you're drinking out of. Do you leave that glass there all day to get dirty and, you know, it sits there a week, a month? Well, we wash our water tanks regularly to keep them clean, just like it's their drinking glass. And we try and bring people into the community to show them and break that stigma where they're so far removed. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that, uh, something happened in the culture where the where things became so plentiful and so easy to to get access to right like for somebody to go and get steaks or ground beef or whatever and so it almost feels like well it's so easy to criticize right it's it's like criticizing security when you're secure it's very very easy to criticize it but then uh, without really knowing what's going on, I, I think one of the most surprising things that ever happened to me with feedlots was finding out a lot of the time the cows are uh, raised on pasture and it's just at the very end that they're spending their time in the feedlot. Is that how your feedlot works as well? That's how all of our, we have about 300 black Angus cows that we calve out each year. And that's how those are. We just got them weaned here a couple weeks ago and we've been watching them and taking care of them, make sure they're bedded and clean. But they've been on grass with mom side by side with her drinking. And also we put out some creep feed, some extra feed for them. So it's less stress on mama. So she don't have to provide quite so much milk. And when we get them in the feedlot, they come right up to the bunk and start eating. And we're just like clockwork, you know, the next spring they're ready to go. And we got them ready to go into somebody's freezer and they make good quality beef. We make sure they have a good life that they 
also on the pasture and also in the feedlot that they're taking care of. Out on Twitter, you know, it's uh, it's pretty cool to not be uh, to be against the kind of feedlot system or to be against the NCBA or against these larger groups. Where do you think that comes from, and and uh, what what's your what's your thought on on the people that are highly critical of these uh, cattle organizations? The biggest thing is is a lot of people need to get involved if they don't like where something's going. You know, in the livestock industry. I've really gotten involved more since I've come back in our local cattlemen's on the state level. And we're working on getting our young cattlemen's going a little more in our state here. And my dad has been a big proponent of beef and he does a lot of stuff with the cattlemen's. We help with our local community blood drives through the cattlemen's and we set policy from the grassroots there. And that goes all the way up to NCBA. And a lot of people don't like the, one dollar per head you know fee on when you sell cattle but i see where it's done a lot of good things for the beef industry and helped us get through some hard times when our markets may not have been as good as they were granted they may not have shown a big bonus but i think they helped our markets and went through it and i i'm open to anybody's opinion about it but i really have seen the benefit of what the cattlemen's nationally and in our local state have done to help our beef industry and get the news out that we are here trying to help and work for a better association for everybody in the livestock industry. Yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm always like on the, the contrarian side of things or on the opposite side, just cause that's the way I'm wired. But I remember uh, hearing you talk about getting involved and being really pretty embarrassed about not, not anything to do with the cattle, but like being critical about things, but not also being involved. And I think that that's one of the things I really like about you is that like you, uh, my natural tendency is almost to be like the protesters, right? I'm going to have my complaint and hold up my sign. I don't really, but, but that, that the real value in, um, in a community is showing up and actually lifting some weight. And if you don't like it, well then get there and, and lift some weight. Do you think if there was something deep and important that you wanted to change about it, that you could make change there? Well, I know absolutely I could. I've really learned that if you don't ask the question, you may get told no, but you aren't going to know if the answer is no unless you try. And there's a lot of things I've helped grow in our Farm Bureau that I've been real active in in the last few years. And now I'm trying to be active in getting more younger cattle producers involved in our State Cattlemen's Association. And it's amazing the people that, well, I never thought of joining it. You know, they're this bad organization. I'm like, you can be part of that and you can make it good. And the reach we have there, let's keep going with that reach and you change it to the policies that work for you and help get this grassroots. I mean, Farm Bureau has had a lot of local grassroots policy that have went on to help nationally, like the diesel fuel for egg equipment being taxed different. That's really made it better that we haven't had to pay as much for diesel fuel because we're not using the state highways. And it's the little things that one voice can reach all the way up to the top level, but you have to start with that one voice. So speaking of groups like the Farm Bureau, I think there's a tough question that, that comes out about, because um, you had also mentioned that you had trouble getting more land. And it's not that you couldn't go out and buy land, it's that the land was so expensive that in order for you to buy it, it became prohibitive. You couldn't turn a profit on on that. So 
What do you think about the idea of getting payments to farmers because we don't want them to lose their, we don't want to lose the number of farmers, but at the same time, farmers going out of business is what breaks up a farm and allows land to come up for sale. So how, how should somebody think about the, those two things being balanced, not wanting to lose farmers, but also wanting to keep land prices in check so that a guy like you could buy land and break into the system? And that's one of the biggest things is, you know, you always have the turnover. The age of the average farmer is getting older every year. And if a guy can get out and start working with some of these older farmers, I mentioned Lynn Johnson before. We worked with him for many years when I was just in grade school yet. And now we're farming some of his land in our operation because we started working with him. And that's where I think the turnover needs to happen is, these older people need to be looking, where's this next generation coming in at? Can we start getting them involved and do some sharecropping or, you know, do even cash lease to these young guys that want to get started, want to improve, that are looking out for the soil health and everything, not just to farm the ground, to farm it, because they have a, a lot of acres. And I think there's getting back to more of that, that these incentives are out there for these older generation to work with these new people to get them in and get them more land. And that's where I think we really need to go is help these young beginners get started. So uh, you've been a, an ardent listener of the podcast. So you probably know uh, this question or I'm hoping you've thought of it a little bit, but I didn't give you a warning about it, which is my favorite question. The Peter Thiel paradox, which is what is one thing that you believe that barely anybody agrees with you on? So if you're involved in all these organizations, what is your idea right now that you're like, ah, people don't agree with me yet on this? What What's your idea there? I don't know if it's as good as it was before when I initially thought, but, you know, don't treat your children like children. Give them these responsibilities and opportunities and you'll be surprised what they can do. Don't just coddle them and do everything for them. They got to do the hard stuff and learn for themselves. And I think I'm still going to stick with that because there's a lot of people out there that they're that helicopter parent or they won't let their children get these experience and let them drive a tractor at age nine, age seven by themselves, you know, with nobody in the cab with them. And there's not a lot of us out there anymore. Yeah, I think about that a lot. I mean, I had a tremendous amount of freedom when I was a kid, not only to ride my bike around to wherever I wanted, but I worked on farms because I grew up in a small town. So I'd walk beans, which meant you got to drive trucks, which meant you got to climb into to grain bins and you got to do all kinds of stuff. And I wonder about that for my child who's going to be growing up in a suburban kind of cosmopolitan world. How is it that you expose your child to the sort of risks that allow them to grow in an environment that says you shouldn't be doing that at all for your kids. You should drive them everywhere. They should be hyper-scheduled. I don't know how this is going to look raising a parent, raising a child living in the suburbs. Well, and that's just it. And I struggle with it here on the farm even to not be the helicopter parent because, I mean, we got bigger equipment than when I was a kid. You know, I ran a smaller 90-horse tractor. Now we're talking 230-horsepower tractors <laughs> driving around the yard with, you know, 22 tons of uh, manure on the back that going through the yard that, you know, if they're in the wrong spot, that equipment can't stop on a dime. So I still, I'm torn yet that, yeah, we still got to treat them like children, that, but at the same time, they got to learn that it's their responsibility to pay attention to and, and really learn what they can and can't do safely. 
Yeah, I remember I was in college and I took a class that I thought was going to be a blow off class, but it's one of those classes that I have probably referenced more than almost any other class in my life, which was a story about the sociology of childhood. And that really childhood is is almost a new concept, like basically from the age of like eight or nine the children had so many expectations for contributions to the family that there wasn't this idea like, oh, you get to play all day. And then when you turn 18, now you, you know, go into the adult world, which now we've extended beyond 18. It's 21 or it's 24 or whatever. But that's an interesting concept. And I wonder how long childhood will be extended for in into the future, right? Because the longer you go, without uh, giving those children responsibilities, I think the less capable they they feel like they are are gonna be. Like you've talked about how many responsibilities you had as a kid or giving them to yours. That's gonna keep the darkness away from a lot of from a lot of children. And I, I think extending childhood much longer is probably not a great thing for our overall society. No, because to be a, a good functional person in society, you have to be involved, I feel and have to take the action to make it better. And if you can't make it better, at least talk to the people who can and get involved and get that outreach out. Because when I was younger, I didn't realize you can reach out and if you're determined and have the drive to, you can accomplish a lot of things. I grew up, I was in about every activity I could be and I was in 4-H and I learned then on the Junior 4-H leaders team that if you ask people if they can do something, they'll usually try and help you and you can make a difference. But the biggest step is you got to go out there and ask. Yeah, I think that one of the the four word phrases that's the most important to learn is I need your help. And uh, if you are going out and asking people for help, and particularly if it's teaching you how to do something, because there's very few things that are more gratifying than having somebody come to you and say, I saw that you knew how to do that thing. Will you teach me how to do it? But I've found that there are people my age, you know, in their late 30s, that have trouble saying, I need your help, not because they're so independent, like the farmer mindset of, I don't want to ask for help, but for the other reason of like, I don't know how to ask for help, or I don't want to interrupt them, or I don't want to impose on their, on their life. And I think that one of the reasons that I had as many mentors in my life as I did was because I was either willing or able or naive enough to go up and ask people for help. And that, that is like one of those things that if you're an older person, it, you, I, I think you really extract a lot of meaning in your life when somebody comes and asks for your help. Well, that's just it. Where we are, we're close enough to our local technical college. We have kids come out all the time. And with COVID, of course, we've kind of went down, but we love giving tours. And I feel that's where we've learned the most is giving these tours, giving these explanations, you know, training young kids that are just out of high school responsibility on our farm that come out here to work and not only telling them go clean this pen, but okay, we got to clean this pen because one, the water tanks, if those aren't clean, our cattle aren't going to produce just like you, you want a clean water glass, our feed bunks. That's just like your dinner plate. We got to keep that dinner plate clean so that them cattle keep healthy and growing well and trying to explain the how and the why together to get that buy-in, you know, get that stakeholder buy-in really has helped us fortify what we do, why we do it. And that's really developed our procedures here on our farm. What is uh, the most difficult thing about being an employer to you? The biggest thing is 
in the egg industry that I found is finding people that want to do this work because you know sometimes it's not bad you sit in the tractor and run it but then you got to get your hands down and dirty with the livestock washing water fountains isn't fun especially when winter time comes it's cold out freezing temperatures you know the the actual physical hard side of it and reading the livestock and keeping yourself safe and working with everybody else in tandem it's just that's the physical labor part and the long hours that I find difficult trying to get people to be employed and to retain them. And the biggest thing, we try and give them purpose and train them something new and help them learn how to run this equipment. Why do we want to run it this way, you know? Well, it's important to run it good because you don't want to break it. If you break it, then you got to do it by hand with a shovel and to show them that it's a lot easier to use the equipment the right way and the careful way and not have to do it by hand makes a big difference. Are you a good boss? I hope I am, but sometimes I wonder, you know, we all have that that mean streak in us, and it's like, no, just do it. Get it done. I want to get in the house. It's 10 o'clock at night, you know. Let, let's get out of here. But at the same time, I try and step back and think with some of the training I was fortunate, fortunate enough to have is ask more questions and say, okay, well, why did you do it that way? Have we not shown you, you know? Sometimes you forget that they haven't had all this experience and training. So we got to step back and say, okay, well, we need to do it this way. And this is why. And to remember that sometimes it might be your fault that you didn't train them in fully and to step back and not just always blame just because you're the boss. I had a boss when I was in high school that told me, well, why do you give me this? We were doing concrete work and I had to give him a bottle of water. And I said, well, because you're the boss. And he goes, no, that's not why it's because right now my job is to, trowel power trowel this concrete so it's flat and smooth and that power trowel is the set point the pinch point and that needs to keep going if it doesn't all of our hard work a level in this concrete pad is worthless and I've really taken that kind of to heart that it's not who's doing the job it's what job is most important in the pinch point to focus on that Oh man, that's a great lesson. You know, and that's kind of goes all the way back to the, to the point we made in the very beginning about you think fatherhood is going to be like, I tell you what to do and then you do it. But if the child has no context for it, no, no way to understand why are we doing it this way, then the, then the only reason they'll do it is because you told them. And that's not fatherhood, right? That's dictatorial tyranny as opposed to teaching somebody. But in order to have the patience to teach a child, it's all, it's all internal, right? You've got to figure out how to be balanced enough to be able to give them instructions and enough context. And then like you were saying, purpose, purpose being, man, I love that word. That's, I'm really glad you brought that up. Yeah. And that's, it's kind of how the pendulum swings. It's always swinging one way or another, but I always try and remember, we got to try and keep that pendulum in the center or try bringing it back to center all the time. Well, Brian Mose, uh, our lives both changed when you decided to drive 45 minutes to the South Dakota State University Collegiate Farm Bureau, and I'm really glad you did. You've been a good friend to me, and it was fun to do uh, to sit down and do an interview. Well, same here. I, I'm really glad that we decided to spend that extra time in the snowstorm to come and meet you. It, it's been an honor. Well, thanks, Brian. We'll have you back and talk more about feedlots and all things agriculture, community, and fatherhood. Appreciate it, man. Thank you.